Okay, we're in Matthew 28. Matthew 28, and we will finish uh, the book tonight. Then we're going to do Micah next, but we're not going to do that next week because uh, we'll be here next week. Then the next two Wednesdays, we'll be gone, and we're just going to wait and start Micah after we get back. So next week, we'll probably do a psalm, um, an independent uh, you know, portion, and then go, go from there. Okay, Matthew 28. Matthew 28, verse 1, says, Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who has been crucified. He is not here, for He is risen, just as He said. Come, see the place where He was lying. Go quickly and tell His disciples that He is risen from the dead. And behold, He is going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see Him. Behold, I have told you. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy, and ran to report it to His disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them, and they came up and took hold of His feet and worshipped Him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to My brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see Me. Now while they were on the way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priest all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, You are to say, His disciples came by night and stole Him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ear, we will win win Him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that you've given to us. And Lord, we pray that just as our Lord Christ instructed his disciples, to go and make disciples of all the nations, Lord, to baptize them and to teach them all that You have commanded us to observe and to follow. Lord, we pray that this would be our aim tonight, Lord, to continue on with this great uh, commandment and this commission that You've granted to Your church to continue uh, to spread and to advance the gospel, Lord, to establish Your church, uh, Lord, to build up Your people until the return of Christ. And we pray, Father, that You might use us in this very small part of the world uh, to bring this about. Lord, in our very midst, we pray that in our own families, Lord, that this uh, would be realized, uh, that we would make disciples of our children, that they would be baptized into the church, and that they would observe all that You have commanded. But, Lord, as well, that we would uh, spread this out from us And that, Lord, you might use us as a means of taking the gospel, Lord, into our neighborhoods and the areas where we live and work. But also, Lord, that you might use us to take it even into the very ends of the earth, 
and then into those places where uh, few have ever heard the gospel. So we pray that you continue to work and continue to build up your church and that what we do tonight would contribute to such things. And it is in Christ then that we pray. Amen. All right, so Matthew 28, here is the uh, end of the book. And we started this uh, many, many months ago. And now we've come uh, here to the very end. And it's fitting that uh, the book ends with the resurrection of Christ, seeing that the purpose of the Gospels is to record uh, the life of Christ. And so they all uh, conclude with His resurrection uh, from the dead. And then the book of Acts is the continuation uh, of what happened after the resurrection in the establishment there of the church after the day of Pentecost and how the Gospel and really what was said here in the end of Matthew chapter 28 in verses 18 to 20, this is what the book of Acts is recording, uh, how it is that this was fulfilled amongst the apostles. And then this is being continued in us, right? What Christ commanded the apostles to do, uh, we are the recipients of it even here 2,000 years later because the reason we have come to know the gospel is because uh, someone went and made disciples of all the nations because all of us were Gentiles, Gentile unbelievers, uh, idolaters at some point in our family line. This is what was true of us. And yet here we are uh, gathering as a Christian church with our Bibles open, uh, worshiping the true God revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And this is because uh, someone went and made disciples of all the nations and baptized them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then taught them to observe all that Christ had commanded. And then this has been handed down to us. And our goal should be to improve upon this, right? to take this very seriously, so that what Jesus is teaching here is fulfilled in our very midst, that we are His disciples and that we observe all that He commanded us to do, but also that we might spread that abroad as well, right? in our own families and in our areas of influence and even to the ends of the earth if God so chooses to use us in such a capacity. So may that be our goal and aim, and this is the very purpose of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is why He came to die on the cross, to be resurrected, so that we could have the forgiveness of sins. And that this message of salvation would be proclaimed far and wide. And this should be the goal and aim of the church and the goal and aim of our life as well. So let's pick up in Matthew 28. Uh, we'll start there in verse 1. It says, Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. Here, these women, they observed where Jesus was laid. This took place on Friday. Then Saturday was the Sabbath day, and they rested according to the commandment. And now this is the first day of the week, Sunday morning, and they're coming early. Now, some people uh, will get bent out of shape and say that Jesus wasn't in the grave for three days because He wasn't there for three consecutive days, three 24-hour periods. But that's not what the Bible means when it says that He would be in the grave for three days. It simply means that He was there on Friday, He was there on Saturday, and then He was there on Sunday. Though Friday, He entered into the grave Friday in the evening. He was there all day on Saturday, and then He was there early Sunday morning, and then that is when He rose from the grave. But on, both fr on all days, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, at some point in the day, he was in the tomb, but now on Sunday, the first day of the week, 
he is raised from the dead, right? And this happens very early in the morning, very early on that day, because by the time the women come and the women are coming here at dawn toward the first day of the week. So very early in the morning, they're coming and the resurrection has already taken place because Jesus is not there. And when they arrive, this angel of the Lord is there to greet them and to instruct them and to tell them these things. If we look at Mark 16, verse 2, we find that these women were very zealous to do good, right? To do good and to come and honor the Lord Jesus Christ. Mark 16, verse 2, or we'll start in verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might come and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tune when the sun had risen. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? So here it's again, very early, the first day of the week, right? They, as soon as they are permitted, according to the law to come and to do this for Christ, they set about doing it. So they are very zealous and eager to come and to show this honor to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, thinking that they are going to anoint his dead body. And yet they don't realize what is in store for them, right? Which is quite the surprise and quite the blessing that is bestowed upon these women. Then also John 20, verse 1, it says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So here, while the sun is rising, while it's still dark, these are different ways of saying the same thing. It just means very early in the morning when it's going from dark to dawn, right? When the sun is rising, this is how early they come in order to... Uh, honor Christ. And as they're coming, their only conundrum is how they are going to get into the tomb, right? Because this large stone has been rolled in front of it and it will require the stone being removed for them to enter into the tomb. Then verse two, and behold, a severe earthquake had occurred for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat on it. Here, an earthquake, a severe earthquake had occurred. Uh, when this angel of the Lord came and whenever Jesus was raised from the dead. And we remember that an earthquake also occurred at his death, right? When he died, there was an earthquake. And then at his resurrection, there is an earthquake as well. And these earthquakes are there representing the mighty power of God, right? Because God's power is seen both in the death of Christ in that his death is what brings about the forgiveness of sin in our life. And also his power is seen in his resurrection from the dead because he was raised by the power of God. So earthquakes accompany great works of God throughout the Bible. And it should not be surprising that when uh, God does these great works of the death and resurrection of Christ, that they are accompanied with these earthquakes, right? With earthquakes that show the power and the awesomeness of God. In Hebrews chapter 12, it tells us that there is another time coming when God will once again shake the earth. And this will be at the end of the age. Hebrews 12, 25 to 29 says, See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. 
And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression yet once more denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken, as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. There, when the Lord appeared to Moses and the people of Israel at Mount Sinai, it was accompanied with earthquakes, with the shaking of the mountain. Also, when Korah and those rebels rebelled against the Lord, they were consumed by the earth swallowing them up, right? By an earthquake coming and swallowing them down to Sheol alive. And here, once again, God is going to shake the earth. It, he shook it at Sinai. He shook it at Calvary. And now He will shake it once again at the end of the age. But when He shakes the earth at this point, He will not only shake the earth, but also the heavens. Meaning, this present creation, the created world as we know it, will be shaken, and only that which is unshakable will be left and will remain, meaning a new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. That He will bring this current world and this current universe to an end when He burns it with His fire. So, here again, these mighty acts of God are accompanied with earthquakes in this way. And here, when this earthquake occurs, there is an angel of the Lord who descends from heaven, rolls away the stone, and sat upon it. We remember that at the birth of Christ, there were angels who appeared to Mary, to Zechariah, uh, Joseph, angel appeared to Joseph to warn him of things and to tell him of what was going to happen. Angels accompanied and appeared to the shepherds out uh, keeping watch over their sheep. So there at the incarnation when Christ was born, there were angels that accompanied this great uh, work of God, announcing these things uh, here to the people that were involved. We also remember that when God appeared at Mount Sinai and gave the law to Moses, He used angels to communicate to Him that there were myriads of angels involved in the transmission of the law of Moses there to Moses and the people. And here again, there is an angel who appears in the resurrection of Christ. And this angel is here because it is showing God's approval that heaven is approving of what is taking place here. And angels are ministering spirits that are sent out to render service to those who will inherit salvation. And here this angel is coming not because Jesus is unable on his own to remove the stone. Right? He could obliterate this stone if he wanted to. Right, He could pulverize it into a million pieces. But it's there for the benefit of the women and also to show God's affirming and God's approval of what is taking place and that these angels are here accompanying him, ministering to him in this way. So the angel comes and rolls away the stone. Also that this stone is rolled away is a sign or evidence that the grave no longer has any dominion over Christ. The stone represents, as it were, a prison, right? The grave is like a prison. The stone is the door that has been sealed. And Christ's body, His human body that has been subjected to death, is in this kind of prison because this is what was true of us. We were enslaved 
to the fear of death all of our lives. And we're unable to escape this prison because of our sin. Christ came into this prison for us. He went in and was imprisoned there in the grave, but now He has been set free. And the captive is being released and is coming out of the prison because He's no longer constrained by it anymore. It no longer has any dominion over Him. And in that, it is a sign or a picture of what is true of us as well. Because those of us who have believed in Christ then death no longer has any dominion or mastery over us. And one of the things that Christ does is He sets the captives free. We were captives to sin, to death, to Satan, but now we have been set free, right? The doors have been opened, and now we are called to come out, to come out and to no longer be enslaved to those kinds of things. This is what the rolling of the stone showing that the grave no longer has any dominion or mastery over Christ. It did temporarily, right? Just for a period of three days, right? According to the will of God, so that He could taste death for us. But now, through His resurrection, He can never die again. Death has no dominion over Him. In terms of His human body, His manhood, Christ is no longer subjected to death. When He came at the Incarnation, he was made like us in all things, in every way except without sin. He had a body of weakness, and part of the weaknesses of the body of Christ at His incarnation is that His body was susceptible. It was able to die. And this was necessary because the very reason He came was to die on the cross for us. But now His resurrected body, the body that He came out of the grave with, is no longer subjected to death anymore. It is an immortal body that cannot die. And just as it is with Christ, so it will be with us, but in its proper order. Christ is the first fruits, and then we are the full harvest that will come later. Just as Christ died and was buried and then rose from the grave to an immortal life, so we who have believed in Christ, if this world continues as it is, we too will die, we will be buried, but then we will be raised to an immortal life as well. And in that immortal life, death will have no dominion over us because just as Christ has been set free from death, so we will be set free from death by virtue of our union with Christ. He is the forerunner. He is the captain of our faith. He is the elder brother of our faith. And what is true of Him in terms of His humanity will also be true of us, right? Our salvation is seen and manifested in his resurrection. Romans chapter 6, Romans 6 verses 8 to 11. Romans 6 verse 8 says, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer has any mastery over Him. His resurrection proves that His payment for sin was pleasing to God and sufficient in the sight of God, that He actually satisfied God's wrath against our sin. This is the proof that we need that in Christ there is no condemnation, that all of our sins have been paid for, have been satisfied in the death of Christ. Had Christ remained in the grave, 
if death continued to have mastery over him, then it would prove that his sacrifice was not sufficient, was not satisfactory to take away our sins. So the resurrection is necessary for our own comfort and consolation. Because if Christ does not raise from the dead, then we're still in our sins. And our faith is futile, and we're going to die in our sins and go to hell. It is His resurrection that proves that His sacrifice has actually taken our sins away and that death no longer has any dominion over Him. And then the same is true of us. It no longer has mastery over us, just as it does not with Christ. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 18, there Christ says of Himself, Revelation 1, 18, He says, I am the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. He is the living one. He was dead, right? This was temporarily, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, he was dead. But now I am alive for how long? He says forevermore, forever, never to die again. And he has the keys of death and Hades. He is the one who is master over death. Death isn't master over him. He is the one that is master over death and over Hades. He has control of all these things by virtue of his resurrection. He has that control not merely as the Son of God, but as both the Son of God and the Son of Man. As a man, he also has control over death and Hades as the one person, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay, then also it says that the angel sat on the stone. Because everyone needs a good place to sit, right? They have to, the angel had to have somewhere to sit to wait for these women. So he finds the stone and sits on it. And this is in defiance, right? In defiance of Pilate, in defiance of the Jews, in defiance of the guards. Because the stone was sent there as a way of sealing up Christ there in the grave. And now this angel is sitting on the stone you know, making a mockery of their futile attempt to keep Christ confined there to the grave. Also, to prevent the soldiers from rolling it back. Because what are you going to do? If you want to roll it back, who do you have to contend with? You've got to go up against this angel, right, sitting on the stone. Just as in the garden in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve were driven from the garden, God put a cherubim there with flaming swords to keep them from coming back. Well, here the angel sits, and if you want to roll the stone back, then you have to deal with the angel. And the guards, clearly, they don't want to do that, okay? Because we'll see that they are quite afraid of what is taking place. Verse 3 and 4. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. Here, the appearance of this angel, and here we'll also note that in other of the gospel accounts, there were more than one angel. There were at least two angels that accompanied. But here the focus is on this one because he's the one that rolled away the stone and he's the one sitting on the stone. The other one was there in the tomb. So there's more than one, but it's just describing the one, though what it describes of him is also true of the other as well. Here, his appearance was like lightning and his clothes as white as snow. This is a holy angel of God, not a fallen angel, not a sinful angel, but one who is in the presence of God, one who is there always ready, willing to go and do the will of God on earth. 
This is what the angels do. They are sent by God as messengers or ministers to come to the earth and to do God's will here. But they stand daily in the very presence of God, right? They're beholding his glory, right? In, in the, and in this way, when the angels who themselves are created beings and in themselves, they have no inherent glory in themselves, but they do have glory as it comes from God. In being in the presence of God, His glory, His radiance is shining through them so that when they appear to men, they are very terrifying in what they see, right? They have this dazzling appearance to them, like lightning, clothes as white as snow. And when men encounter angels in the Bible, even holy men, when they encounter angels in the Bible, how do they always respond? Fear, right? Fear, trembling. They think that they're going to die. So they're not cute, cuddly, little baby-like creatures, such as you see around, decorated here and there in people's houses, but they are terrifying creatures. And whenever they appear to, to men, they always are afraid that they're going to die. And typically, the first thing the angel has to say is what? Do Don't be afraid. <laughs> Don't be afraid. Do not fear. And this because of the majestic of their being, but also because... They stand in the presence of God and the glory of God is radiating off of them. And when men, sinful men, encounter the glory of God, it causes fear, trembling, terror within them. Exodus 34, we see this. Now, if this was true of Moses, who was at this point not a glorified man, he was still a sinful man, in that he still had his mortal body, right? He did not have a glorified, resurrected body at this point. Exodus 34, 29. It says, It came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand as he was coming down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with him. So when Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. And then in verse 31, it says that he would put a veil over his face because the people were afraid to come near to him because of the glory that was radiating off of Moses because he was in the presence of the Lord when the Lord would speak to him. Now that's true of Moses. Even though Moses was still a man with the flesh, he had a mortal body. He didn't have a glorified body at this point. Yet, when he is in the presence of God, even for a short period of time, he is radiating with this glory, so much so that the people are terrified to come near him. Then how much more would that be true of angels who have no sin, right? These are holy angels. They've not fallen into sin. Spiritual beings who are in the very presence of God day and night. So they would possess much glory in, in terms of what they are radiating. And this is why people are terrified of them, right? Not only because of their being, but also because of the glory of God that is resonating off of them. And that's the result of these guards. They shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The guards are terrified, right? They are like dead men in this way. And these are not, you know, children. These aren't uh, sissies you know, people who are easily scared. These are Roman soldiers who are used to being in very dangerous situations. 
men of courage, men of valor, men who are used to warfare, right? So these are not men who are typically afraid or fearful in situations, situations that common men would be very much afraid of. These are hardened men because of these things. And these are the men that were there at the crucifixion. So they are themselves hardened to these kinds of things, desensitized to things that might cause other men to squirmish and to uh, have apprehensions about. So this is the kind of men they are. However, when the angel appears, they are quite terrified. So much so that they become like dead men. They're, they're acting like they're dead. Just laying on the ground. Don't move. Don't say anything. Pretend like we're dead and maybe he won't talk to us and he'll leave us alone and won't kill us. And this is an angel who hasn't come to kill them. Now he has come to oppose them because they are guarding the tomb. But he didn't come to execute them and he did not come to kill them. Yet they are still terrified. Now, if that's true, when men see an angel and an angel who hasn't come to kill them, but just to oppose them in what they're doing, how much more true will it be when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire to come and to execute vengeance on the ungodly? How much more terrified should we be that Christ would come with all of his glory? Right? Their glory comes from Him. He is the source of it. And when He comes in His glory, men will be terrified. Right? So much so in Revelation chapter 6, it says that they will even cry on the mountains and the rocks to fall on them, right? to hide them, to cover them from the face of Christ who is coming to execute His vengeance on them. Revelation 6 15 to 17. Then the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the commanders, and the rich, and the strong, and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? So there, when Christ is revealed, it's fear. Fear, trembling, uh, people crying out for rocks and mountains to fall on them, hiding themselves under, in whatever cave or in whatever place they might try to seek cover, however vainly it is, from the Lamb who is coming to execute vengeance on them. Here, this is similar to the guards. Verse 5, The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for He is risen, just as He said, Come see the place where he is lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. And there you will see him. Behold, I have told you. Here, notice that to the angel, to the guards, to the enemies of God, it is fear. But to the women who are friends of God, it is comfort. Right? He comforts them. He tells them, do not be afraid. He doesn't say that to the guards. He doesn't give them any comfort at all. He's quite content with them to be pretending and acting like they're dead men. And rightfully, they ought to be afraid. But here to these women, he gives immediate comfort to them. And this is certainly true, that if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, and is God for these women, 
Yes, these are believing women. These are godly women. These are true followers of Christ. God is for them. Christ died for them. And if God is for them, then who else is for them? His angels are for them. And the angel has not come to kill them, to torment them, to speak harshly to them, but has come to give them glad tidings, right? Good news is what he comes to bring to them for their comfort and for their consolation. And this is the way it always is. If God is for us, then who can be against us? But if God is against us, then who can be for us, right? We want God as our friend. We do not want him as our enemy. This is the way that we have to be. Here, he is the friend of these women. So the angel is sent for their benefit and comfort, but he is the enemy of these guards and those that would seek to oppose Christ. So he comes to terrify them, right? One for the one and another for the other. And he tells them, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid either of us in our appearance because we're not here to kill you, nor be afraid because the body of Jesus is not here. They've come looking for the body of Christ. They came to anoint him and to honor him after his death. But when they get there, they'll find that his body is not to be found. And we know from John's gospel that this was very concerning to Mary, that when Jesus originally appeared to her, she thought that he was the gardener that was there tending to this garden. And she asked him, where have they taken the body of my Lord? Right. If you know where he's at, please tell me so that she could go and take him and give him a proper burial. So Mary is very concerned about where is the body of Christ, but the angel is here to comfort them that though they are not going to find the body of Christ that they are seeking, the reason they're not going to find it is good. He's not here because he's risen. You're looking for a living man among the dead, right? Living men don't live in tombs, right? They, or at least normal ones don't. Right? Living men live in houses, right? They, they go in places that those who are alive uh, are at. Well, Christ is not here in the tomb because he is no longer dead. And this will be a great joy to them, right? Their sorrow will be turned to joy when they come to the realization and the understanding that Christ has been raised from the dead. So don't fear neither us nor fear that Christ is not here because he has risen from the dead. And this act of his resurrection is a chief article of our faith, the resurrection of the dead. We read that in Hebrews chapter 6, didn't we, last Sunday? One of the elementary teachings of the Christ is resurrection from the dead, the resurrection. We have to believe in the resurrection. And in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, Colossians 1, 18, says, He is also head of the body, the church, and He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. He is the head of the body, that is the church. He is our head, and we are His body, and what is true of the head will also, must be true of the body. He rose from the grave, and that gives us comfort, because if that happened to the head, then what will happen to the body? The body will rise as well. That's why he is the firstborn from the dead, so that he would have first place among everything. And then also we see there in verse uh, 6, he's risen just as he said, just as he said, and then come see the place where he was lying. 
both of these are told to them to build up the faith of these women, right? He's reminding them that this is what Jesus told you. This is what he said to you while he was still with you. Before his death, he was telling them of his death and resurrection. We remember at the end of chapter 27 that even the scribes and Pharisees that didn't believe in him knew that Jesus was preaching his death and resurrection. That this imposter, this fraud said that he would die and three days later he would rise again. That's why they wanted this tomb to be sealed and a guard to be stationed there lest the later deception would be worse than the first. The angel is reminding these women that you shouldn't be surprised in any of these things. You should not be surprised that he suffered and that he died. You should not be surprised that he was buried. And you should not be surprised that you've come to anoint his body and his body is not here. This is exactly what he told you would happen. And this is what we need to remember, right? We always must be reminded of the word of God because we're often very forgetful. And though they knew these things and had been instructed in these things, it did not take its proper root in their life. They weren't settled on it. They weren't so convinced of these things that whenever the situation and the circumstances came upon them, it caused their faith to be shaken, right? During his death and during this period of time, they were in great sorrow, great turmoil. They didn't know what was going on. And this is because they did not remember the word of the Lord. They were forgetful of the word. And this is common with us as well. We forget, right? And we need to be reminded over and over and over again of what it is that we are called to do. So he tells them, the angel tells them, remember what he said. Then also come and see for yourself. This also for the benefit of their faith. Come look in the tomb and you'll see clearly that he is not here. And when they go into the tomb, there's another angel there. And then also the grave clothes are folded up neatly, which is, tells us all the children should fold their clothes up neatly, just as Christ did there. It was all neat and orderly and tidy there when he did those things. Luke 24, Luke 24, 44 to 49 Luke 24, 44. Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. And you are witnesses to these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. He's reminding them, this is Christ after His resurrection, speaking to His disciples, reminding them, remember what I told you before my death and resurrection? I told you that all these things would happen and that the Scriptures had to be fulfilled. And then he opens their mind to understand these things. Then verse 7, the angel tells the women what they need to do. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. And there you will see him. Behold, I have told you. Now that the women have seen this, and now that they have been confirmed in these things, now 
go quickly and go tell the disciples. Go tell them what you have seen, right? What you have heard. Now, we have pointed out before, and we'll do it again, that here it is the women who are telling the men, telling the men about the resurrection, that they are the ones given the honor of announcing the resurrection of Christ to the disciples. Though Jesus could have gone and done it himself because he's risen from the dead, he could have sent an angel to do it, but he gives the women this honor because of their faithfulness. Because when the men scattered and fled, it was the women who were more true and more faithful and stayed with him till the very end. So he appears first to them and then gives them the honor of going and announcing it to the disciples and to tell them that Christ has indeed been raised from the dead and that he's going to go ahead of you into Galilee. They're going to go to Galilee, and this is where Christ is going to spend time with them over the next uh, 40 days when he's there with them. This for their benefit, right? In Galilee, this is where more of his disciples would be at because this is where he did the majority of his ministry was in the Galilee region. That was kind of his home base, Capernaum and Bethsaida in those areas. But also the real seed of hostility against Christ and the apostles is in Jerusalem. And this would be a more comfortable setting. It'd also be better for them and their faith to be there. So that's where Jesus is going to spend time with them over the course of these 40 days. And so he's going to go ahead of them to Galilee. And then when they arrive there, he will appear to them and minister in that way. Okay, then verse 8 and 9. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took a hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. Here they leave the tomb quickly, it says, with fear and great joy. There's a mixture, a mixture of fear because of the angel that they have seen, also because of all the circumstances and everything that has been revealed to them, that it properly produces in them fear, but also great joy. Great joy because they're receiving word that their Lord and Savior, who they love very much, has been risen from the dead. And these things, again, they're working through these things and coming to these understandings of all that this means and entails for their own salvation, for Christ, and for their own comfort and consolation. So fear and great joy, which I think is a proper pattern for what our worship of God should be. When we worship God, it should be a mixture of fear and joy. We should be solemn and fearful in the sense that we are worshiping the true God. We are drawing near to Him, and this calls for fear and trembling with proper reverence to God. We should not approach God in a trite, uh, trivial, uh, kind of a loosey-goosey way as many people do today. It's, it's very profane to do that. But also, we shouldn't be uh, stick in the muds, you know, so somber and uptight that we can't have any joy or rejoicing uh, in what God has done for us. How can we not have joy? Because He's forgiven us of our sins, right? He calls us His own sons and daughters, that we are His children, that Christ is our Savior and our Lord. That should cause us to have great joy when we consider those things. And it should be a time of rejoicing when God's people come together to worship Him because of all the great things that God has done for us. And this is what their response is. Fear, 
with great joy as well. And then they go and report to the disciples. And then Jesus met them and greeted them, and they came and took hold of His feet and worshipped Him. There is a, a, in the other Gospels we see that the angels appear to the women, and then they go and report it to the men, and then the men come and look in the tomb, and then uh, Jesus appears to the women, and then later He appears to the disciples. I think that's the order of events as they unfold, and I think that's what Matthew is giving a very short summary of these events. They run and they report it to the men. We know that Peter and John come and look in the tomb as well, and then they go away both in wonder but also disbelieving and with doubt. And then that is when Mary is there, and then the Lord appears to her at that time. Uh, And then He gives them and reaffirms that He wants them to go and tell this to His disciples. But notice here in verse 10, Do not be afraid. Go take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. Notice here that Jesus calls them His brethren, His brothers. Not just His disciples, so that is true. And it is a proper sense in which He is our master, our teacher, and we are His disciples. There's also a proper sense in which He is our master and we are His slaves. Both of those are true, and we need to affirm those things. But there's also a sense in which Christ is our brother. He is our elder brother, and we are His younger brethren. And this is showing His human nature, that He was made like us in all things except without sin. That since the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of the same, that through death He might render powerless Him who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and to set us free. This is why He calls them His brethren, in order to comfort them, right? In order to show His nearness and His love for them. He doesn't speak down to them. He doesn't call them His subjects at this time, though that is true, and He could rightly do so. But these are men who are in many They're in much fear, turmoil, trepidation. They've had great doubts. Their faith has been shaken and tried and tested over these last several days. And now their Lord and Savior is being reported to them that He is alive. And He here addresses them as His brethren, right? In order to comfort them. And this shows us the tenderness, the compassion, the way that Christ condescends to us. Could, could he, we even begin to imagine that the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, who Himself is uncreated, the eternal God, and yet that He would associate with sinners in such a way that He would actually call us His brothers, and that He would, that he would condescend to us the humility, the lowliness of Christ, for Him to be so meek and mild to associate with worthless people like you and me. And here, his own disciples, who have been very faithless to him, they all scattered and ran, though they boasted about how faithful they were going to be, that they would never leave him or forsake him. Peter even saying, even if everyone else leaves, I'll never leave you. Even if I have to die with you, I'll die with you. And yet none of them were true to their word. They all scattered, right? When the shepherd was struck, the sheep scattered. And yet here, when Christ sends word to them, He's not scolding them. He's not reprimanding them. He's not saying, you worthless wretches. I can't believe you guys all sold me out, right? Left me high and dry. Though all of those things are true. But He comes to them and calls them His brethren. Again, showing His love, His mercy, 
his kindness, the tenderness, and that he's coming to restore them, right? He's not coming to kill them. He's not coming to judge them. He's coming to restore them and to renew them and to strengthen them in their faith. And this is what Christ does for us as well. We are his brothers, right? And he treats us as such, as though we are members of his family because we are by faith. Hebrews chapter 2, this is a great doctrine for us to understand. And this is why, like we were talking about on Sunday, the elementary teachings of the Christ, right? We have to understand that Jesus was both God and man. You can't be a Christian without understanding that. You have to understand that he had a body and that he died on the cross and that he did so for our sins. But then we have to build upon that doctrine and come to greater, deeper understandings of what that means for Jesus to be both God and man. And one of those doctrines is that he's not ashamed to call us his brothers and what it means for him to be made like us. Right? That's what he means by moving on from these elementary teachings of Christ. Yes, we believe this, but now we need to build upon that and understand greater truths, even more truths, concerning this doctrine. That's what we mean by building upon this foundation, the structure or the body of doctrine. And that's what the apostle is doing in Hebrews chapter 2 and throughout the book by explaining in more and more detail the nature and the doctrines associated to the humanity and the divinity of Christ in the one person of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the offices and all that that entails as it relates to our salvation. And as we grasp more and more of that, we have a fuller understanding of our salvation, which will then be a great benefit to us because it will strengthen us, comfort us, give us consolation, more godliness, more righteousness, more usefulness to the church. Hebrews 2 verse 9. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, from whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren, and in the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him, and again, behold, I and the children whom God gives me. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives." For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are being tempted. He is not ashamed to call them his brothers. And here we see it. He calls them brothers right here. Who else is he not ashamed to call his brothers? All of us, if we have true faith in Christ. He should be, if anyone had a right to be ashamed in this relationship, who would be the one that should be ashamed? He should be ashamed of us, but he's not ashamed of us. So should we be ashamed of Christ? No, we should never be ashamed to own him as our Savior and Lord, but should with great gusto right, confess and profess 
Jesus as our Savior and Lord, that He is our elder brother. Verse 11. Now, while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, You are to say His disciples came by night and stole Him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. Here, we remember the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man being in Hades and being in torment requested that Father Abraham send Lazarus to his brothers so that they would not come to that place of torment. And Abraham told him that they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, well, they won't listen to, Abraham, to Moses and the prophets, but if someone should come back from the dead, then they will listen. And Abraham told the rich man that if they will not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And here, what do we have proof of? What was the sign that Jesus told the Jews that He would give to them. It was the sign of Jonah. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days, so the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth for three days, and then He will rise again. And these guards, they know what happened. They know that an angel came. They're laying on the ground like dead men, right? Terrified of these things. And they go and report to the Jews, to the religious leaders, what they have seen and what has happened. And yet, does this miracle, this sign change their hearts? No, it doesn't. It does not. But what do they do? They come up with a plan, an idea, a scheme, in order to spread amongst the Jews to keep them from believing in Christ. Right? And this is, there's actually a book I read one time with Chuck, my friend that we're supporting now, called The Consequence of Ideas. The Consequence of Ideas. This one idea, this one lie, how many Jews have gone to hell in the history of the world believing this lie. The basis for their denial of the resurrection of Christ, and he says that it is spread to this day. The day of the writing of this gospel, this is what was spread among the Jews. And if you ask a Jew today, an unbelieving Jew, will explain the resurrection, what will their answer be? How do they explain the absence of the body of Christ from the tomb? His disciples came and stole them. This is what they still believe today as the basis for their denial of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And here it comes about by these men who are so hard-hearted, so blinded in their hatred of Christ and their hatred of God that they will not believe even if He should rise from the dead. And then also involved in this are these soldiers who themselves know full well what has happened. And yet, what is their downfall? Well, what is the root of all kinds of evil? Is it not love of money? Love of money. That they sell their soul for filthy gain. They promote a lie for the sake of sordid gain. For the sake of money. We remember in Deuteronomy 16.19. Deuteronomy 16.19. It says, You shall not distort justice. You shall not be partial. And you shall not take a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of the righteous. A bribe blinds 
the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of righteousness. Here, the eyes of many are blinded and the words of the righteous are perverted by these lies, by a bribe. They take a bribe for money. They receive a large sum of money in order to give credence to this lie that the disciples came and stole the body. And then they assure them that if this comes to the governor's ear, right, because this would be grounds for them to get in big trouble, right? They didn't do their duty. How did you let these disciples hoodwink you and sneak in and steal the body of Christ? Then they tell them that if, if you get in trouble, then we'll come and explain everything and get you out of trouble. And so this is what they agree to do in order to uh, keep word from spreading, at least amongst the Jews, concerning the resurrection of Christ, so that people will not believe in Him. These, this is what false teachers do. They spread lies that prevent people from believing the truth. And here, sadly, though it's not... Um, all of it is under the will and control of God. So none of this is happening contrary to God's will or outside of His control. Yet, this is the means used by the devil in order to keep men from believing the gospel. Uh, is the spread of lies. And here, this is they're, they're false teachers spreading a lie that keeps people from believing the truth, that blinds them, puts them in darkness, so that they do not believe and receive the knowledge of the truth and the forgiveness of sins. And it's still being spread this day.